What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Sex and Self podcast, a place where you can learn a little bit about sex and hopefully a lot about yourself. Today, we have Jordan Donnell with us, and they're going to talk to us about destigmatizing STIs and kind of all the misconceptions that generally folks have when they're getting tested, when they're learning about their bodies. Uh, Jordan is a physician's assistant, a sexual health educator, and an intimacy coach, and she loves talking about people's bodies and hopefully helping empower folks, which is exactly what we do here. So Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am Jordan Donnell. I go by she, her pronouns. And yeah, I am a physician assistant by trade and am just so excited to chat with you more about STIs. Amazing. And for people who like aren't sure, what does a physician's assistant do? Yeah. So a physician assistant is somebody who has a um, medical background to prescribe and treat under a doctor. So typically we work pretty, um, um, what's the right word? We work very independently and um, take care of all kinds of health conditions, whether it's in primary care, um, OB-GYN, sexual health, women's health, doesn't matter, all types of fields of medicine. Amazing. And I know you do a lot of work with um, kind of STI destigmatization. Um, so as we're kind of getting into the conversation, what are some things that you just kind of want to like debunk from the beginning? Like what terminology are we going to be using? Why haven't I said STDs yet? Um, before we kind of get into it. Yes. I love that. So where, where we should begin is the term STI versus STD. And let's talk about kind of the background between the two. STI stands for sexually transmitted infection. STD stands for sexually transmitted disease. And the disease part of the term has kind of been removed from the terminology and the CDC is kind of changing the way that they talk about STIs because most of them are infections and not diseases. And if caught early, does not result in long-term consequences potentially, depending on the condition and does not result in disease. So for people who are still like unsure about what the difference between an infection and a disease is, can you boil it down to kind of like one or two sentences? Yeah, so an infection is gonna be something like COVID, We're all very familiar with that. That is a type of infection. That is a viral infection. Strep throat is a type of bacterial infection. They are treatable. Um, With a disease, that is something that has more long-term consequences. So a good example would be untreated syphilis can result in uh, brain neuro complications, eye complications and um, other things like that. So a disease has more of a systemic effect. Amazing. So you do a lot of work with STI destigmatization and you're also on the board of directors for something positive for positive people. What got you into this work or interested in this work? 
Yeah, I love this question. So my story really starts back when I was a teenager. I was always the girl that my friends would come to whenever they had questions about their bodies, whether it was related to STIs, abortion, plan B, birth control, period questions. Like everybody came to me for all of their questions. I was the one going with them to their appointments. And that's where it really all started. And then I went to PA school. I have a business um, for myself called Pure Romance. It's an in-home party planning company for women with bath and beauty products. And that was kind of my gateway drug into all of this in that I was first exposed to that about 10 years ago, and they gave me tons of education, tons of information about the body, how things worked from a sexual standpoint and from intimacy standpoint. And... I used that platform to educate my clients about their body and in especially conditions that affected women who identify or um, individuals who identify as women, such as uh, PCOS, endometriosis, our sexual response cycle. And that is where my podcast, Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators, actually stemmed from, is that I was doing that on a smaller platform and then took that to a larger platform and created the podcast so that more people had that information and had access to that. So fast forward a little bit more, I ended up in 2020 with a diagnosis of HSV. And that is where I really kind of dove into the STI world. And as a provider, you would think, oh, I work in, oh, I work in women's health. I should know about STIs. I should have gotten this education in school, but I was left feeling very afraid and very alone and a lot of shame, a lot of new emotions came up. And then I realized that this is what my patients had been going through and that the information isn't really available for people and our providers are not getting correct information out to people who have positive STI diagnoses. And so that is really where my love for talking about STIs and bringing more attention and awareness to it came from. That's incredible. Yeah, I, I mean, I speak to so many people and it's so unfortunate that everybody has to learn from experience instead of education. But I think this is something like super important to highlight because, you know, everyone feels so alone in this in this sexual health journey and in this field. But even, you know, providers like you are not getting the adequate training, which is like ridiculous because we all go to a doctor for whatever we need, whether it's birth control or PCOS or an STI diagnosis and they don't even have the resources or the education to support us. So like. Yeah, I, I definitely like resonate with that a lot. But when we kind of get into the conversation with vulva owners, um, there's like a lot of complexities with the with our anatomy and the way it's it is. And a lot of people are kind of unaware of kind of the different, I don't want to say strains, but essentially what the difference between an STI and some sort of uh pH imbalance, kind of like bacterial vaginosis, like what the difference is. Because for me specifically, I remember uh, when I got into this field, I got diagnosed with BV and I thought, you know, oh Lord, it's an STI. I'm going to die. I have to talk to my partner. 
And uh, it was none of that. It was very much like, here's antibiotics. Your partner doesn't have BV. They can't get it. I was having sex with a man at the time. And I kind of was just left to fend for myself. And I also had a yeast infection on top of it. So I was like, what the fuck is going on? So because of the way our anatomy is structured and a lot of women feel like significantly shamed for, you know, advocating for themselves and talking about their vaginas and vulvas because it's, it tends to be kind of like a dirty topic. Can you kind of debunk some of the nuances with the vulva? Yes. I am so glad that you brought that up because I think that is a huge misconception that I see with patients is BV yeast infections are not sexually transmitted infections. BV bacterial vaginosis is when you have the pH balance is kind of thrown off in your vaginal flora. We all have some bacteria in our vaginal flora, but sometimes quote, the bad bacteria can grow in abundance or can grow a little bit more and it throws off your pH, which can give you kind of a fishy odor. It can change the texture of your discharge. Yeast infections are when you have an overgrowth of yeast in your vaginal flora as well. Both of those are not STIs. However, a lot of STIs do present with similar symptoms and that's where it can kind of get tricky And just because there is something going on with your vagina does not mean that you have an STI. And so a lot of people come to me and they're like, I have an STI. Well, actually there are other things that can happen to your vagina. One of the other really important things to note is the term vagina versus vulva. And the easiest way to explain the difference is with a little hand diagram. This is how I love to describe it. If you make a peace sign, flip it upside down, stick your thumb through it. The external anatomy is going to be your vulva. And the back of your hand is your mons pubis. Your fingers, your pointer finger and your middle finger are going to be your vulva or I'm sorry, your labia. Your thumb is your clitoris. And then right below that is going to be your urethral entrance. And then below that is the vagina. And the vagina is an internal cavity where childbirth occurs, where our menses comes through, and also where penetration occurs if you are having penetrative sex. And so a lot of people as a provider come to me and say, there's something wrong with my vagina. But what they actually mean is that, hey, I am having pain when I urinate, or I'm having pain on my labia or on my vulva. And that is actually not the the proper terminology. And knowing the difference between vagina and vulva can be so helpful when talking to your providers, but also when you have partners. Because explaining from a pleasure standpoint where you like to be pleased can be very valuable to have the proper terminology so that you can teach them what you like a lot easier. I'm so happy you brought that up because I feel gypped. Like my whole life, I'd been calling my vulva my vagina. And I think I was about 18 when I learned that that was the incorrect terminology. And it's just like men are not walking around calling their penises something different. Uh, And it's just... It, it really just irks me. And it's, it's, it's something that I, I still like will teach women who are 40, 50, 60 years old. Like 
I don't even think my grandmother knows what her vulva is, to be completely transparent. I think it's she just thinks it's a vagina. And granted, she's an immigrant. I don't want to confuse her, but it's still a disservice, you know, like a huge disservice to us. And I really appreciate that pleasure lens, too, because because vulvas are so different, your labia minora and majora might, you know, be covering your clitoral hood and you might have to kind of like pull back and kind of get in there and and work around the way your anatomy is presented on the exterior and i think too specifically if you're having sex with men and men are watching pornography you know those those porn pussies are not real like they don't have any like their labia majora and menorah are just like fucking gone and it looks like a 12 year old's vulva uh and it's 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 kind of it, it makes it very challenging for women to achieve orgasm too because the stat is like what 70 percent of women can achieve it from penetrative sex so it's just like we're it, all of this is just doing everyone a disservice essentially so i'm really happy that you kind of brought that up um are there any other misconceptions about the vulva that you kind of want to bring forward? Yeah, I think that you brought up a really good point when you talked about porn and the way that vulvas look, particularly labia, look on porn. And we are not talking about the fact that labia come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, they're different lengths. They may not be the same length. They may be asymmetric. They may be symmetric, but if you think about the anatomy of how the labia are formed and how the testicles are formed in utero, everything starts developing the same. And then right around six weeks in utero, it kind of goes to being gender specific, whether it's going to develop into a vulva or whether it's going to uh, develop into testicles. And so we know that testicles and penises come in different sizes, different shapes, different colors. And we understand that, but the same thing goes for vulvas in that they also come in different shapes, sizes, and colors, but we're just not talking about that. No, absolutely. And even like women understanding or specifically vulva owners understanding like what their vulva actually looks like and taking a mirror and going down there. There's a, there's a funny quote from one of my favorite doctors, Dr. Lori, and she goes, if you put a hundred penises in a room, men would be able to point out exactly which penis is theirs. But if you put a hundred vulvas in the room, everyone would be lost. Um, yeah. Which is crazy. Cause it's, it's yeah. like, I'm sure if you put my chest like on a wall with other boobs, like I'd be able to figure it out or my feet even, but like my vulva, is just like, she's just gone in the wind. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because one of the first things that I do with a lot of my clients is looking at your vulva and paying attention to it, learning it, because also you do not know what is normal for you if you're not spending time with it to learn, hey, this is what odor it has. This is what it looks like. So if something looks different, you don't know because you don't know what normal is. And, you know, this, you just have a better conception of what normal is for you. 
No, absolutely. I think this is also helpful. And it, it's a great segue to kind of get into um, kind of discussing STIs and specifically even your experience, if you feel comfortable, um, because noticing a difference is like, specifically for us Volvo owners, it's so vital. Like when I got BV, I really don't think that I would have noticed unless I had a yeast infection because I was overproducing yeast. And that was something that was very noticeable. Um, so for in your experience, what was that like being kind of a service provider? And, and was there any shame or stigma? Or did you put any pressure on yourself when you got your diagnoses? Yes. Um, when I got my diagnoses, I actually did what a lot of providers do is um, I was going to avoid it. I was not going to go to the doctor because if I don't know, then I don't have it. Right. And that just goes back to like the shame of STIs and the stigma behind STIs in that had I known that I'm not going to have outbreaks all the time, that it comes and goes every now and then, that it is super manageable, that people are still going to want to have sex with me, I would have probably felt very different going into getting that diagnosis. But when I got that diagnosis, um, I had my job do it. My coworker gave me the results, one of my doctor friends, and she said, you have the gift that keeps on giving. And it was like the most un supportive way of giving a diagnosis and yeah she's a friend yeah you know we work together but just think about how many patients have probably heard that same thing and at that time when you are getting that news the way that it is presented can dramatically affect how you handle that information and immediately shame and stigma is placed into your mind when it comes like that so it was, it was rough. I am honestly so thankful for my podcast because at the same time I was doing a series on STIs and I had found something positive for positive people. I found Courtney Bram and was able to get him on my podcast. And that helped me so much initially learning what I needed to know about HSV, first of all. And then second of all, knowing that there are other people in the world who have HSV who are having sex and have totally normal sex lives. And a lot of us will tell you that our sex life is so much better now because we've had to have conversations about sex that we were never having before, that we did not feel well equipped to have before that we now had to have. And so like sex for me is so much better after that. I'm, I'm still not over the comment, the gift that keeps on giving. I was like, I heard you say that. And I was like, what does she mean? And I was like, oh my God, what the fuck? Like, yeah, it's so bad, right? Fucking traumatizing, honestly. And that's also like, it goes back to our conversation with like doctors not having one, the adequate information, but also like they don't get trained or taught like how to speak to people, which I think is like really bad, um, especially when you're dealing with like such vulnerable and like, like emotional and like stigmatized, you know, medical diagnoses. I just feel like, like, what the hell? Anyways, um, 
so no, I really appreciate the work that you do, but yeah, I can't imagine that being easy at all. And I, I really like the note that you made about conversations and sex, because I feel like that that's something that we're not taught. We're not taught how to communicate our desires and our, you know, diagnoses or our statuses with our partners. We kind of just go in blindly and like go with the moment, blah, blah, blah. Um, but when you really have those conversations yeah, sometimes they're daunting, but it it sets you up so that you can have even more conversations around pleasure and, you know, around autonomy and around desires and stuff like that. So it seems like a blessing in disguise, but I'm sorry that that happened to you because holy shit, what a way. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was this sounds so cliche, but one of the best things that could have happened for me, I mean, you know, I don't wish an STI on anybody. I don't wish that on my partner. However, the reality is that if you are sexually active, you more than likely will have an STI over your lifetime. And on any given day, one in five individuals has an STI. And that's straight from the CDC, the Center for Disease and Control um, here in the States. And I forgot where I was going with that. I think the point of it is that it's more common than not. And I also really think too, that something that I say quite frequently is I think there's this misconception that like, oh, you have to have so many partners to, you know, become in contact with an STI. And I'm like, you could literally have sex with one positive person, have sex for the first time and contract an STI. Or maybe you didn't have penetrative sex and you had um, a maybe oral sex because so many times we're not talking about the fact that skin to skin contact, oral sex, anal sex, all transmit STIs as well. And so you may never have had penetrative sex and still potentially could get an STI if you are having skin to skin contact. And I was listening to a lecture from Dr. Dacker the other day and she was saying that the term multiple partners when used by like the CDC, which puts you at risk for an STI is greater than four partners over a lifetime. <laughs> and to be like completely honest with you, I know there's a lot of people that may have one to four partners. A lot of people have more than four partners. To be honest, I don't think I know anyone that has less than four partners, like in my life. Either right now maybe yeah it's yeah they either have more than four or they haven't become sexually active yet that's kind of like what it is at least at 22 however old I am but yeah, yeah for like <laughs> I don't know it's just it's such an like archaic notion of like you have to do something multiple times like to you know contract contract it but it's like the same thing when you get a cold if you get sick you only need to get sick from one person you don't need to be in a room with sick people sure that like you know isn't that the truth that that hires your risk if you're in a room with sick people sure but you only need one sick person to get ill so yeah I keep seeing all these posts about how COVID is related to STIs and I think that you know, it is actually a really good reminder of how infections, viruses are spread. A lot of the STIs are viruses as well. And it just takes contact. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that you are nasty for going to the grocery store. 
you know, sex is part of life. Sex is part of our human nature and it happens. Yeah. And it's like, in my mind, it's the same thing as getting an ear infection, same thing as getting strep throat. Like we're all going to get sick eventually. It's just another organ that we use, but because it's so stigmatized and there's all these different notions about purity culture and, you know, just all these different expectations of what is desirable and what's going to get you like the quote unquote best partner or, you know, the partner that respects you, blah, blah, blah. It's like, you want to marry someone who like gets angry at you for having a cold? Like, it just doesn't seem... I don't know. I guess I guess you and I particularly are probably in such a positive and engaging community, but I do know that there is a lot of stigmatization around it. So when you had when you received your diagnosis, uh, I mean, obviously you were a practitioner, bef- like as you got your diagnosis. But were there any like internalized uh, understandings of STIs that kind of trickled out? you know, beyond your like professional opinion that you might've repressed and kind of came out from childhood or like, you know, like the Catholic guilt, even though I'm not even religious anymore, it trickles up on me occasionally. So. Yeah. You know, I've actually never talked about this and I'm so glad that you brought this up because I realized that for so long in my life, I had been scared of getting an STI and not allowing myself to do the things that truly bring me pleasure, have the experiences that I want out of fear. And now that I have HSV, to be completely honest with you, I have such a better understanding of, okay, just get tested and treated. You know, as long as you are doing your routine testing and know your status, you are able to handle the situation and inform other people, manage it, whatever that looks like. And it's not this, oh, if I get gonorrhea or chlamydia, I'm never gonna have sex again. (laughs) If you get an STI, you're still gonna have sex. It just looks different because you're gonna have different conversations about what your safe sex practices are. You're gonna have conversations about sex in general. You're gonna have conversations about so many things that I lost my train of thought again. You're just going to have so many good, positive conversations that come from, from that. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that, I think that this, like circling back to what I said at the beginning of the episode, it's like, unfortunately people have to learn through experience instead of, you know, the education system that failed all of us. But I think that it's a stepping stone. It's like a direct stepping stone to having a more comprehensive, accessible, inclusive, communicative approach to sex. And, you know, it's, it's not like the ideal situation. I would much rather people learn through, you know, the school system and, you know, find out ways to protect themselves and to protect their bodies and, you know, maintain healthy relationships and learn how to communicate, but nobody fucking teaches that nobody teaches that nobody nobody's having those conversations and even the people that are having you know really open and progressive conversations with their parents their parents are not sitting there talking to them about how to engage in you know sexual conversations with your partners like nobody wants their fucking parents to do that like at all 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you brought this up. So yesterday I just dropped a podcast for National Sex Education Day, which is February 2nd. And I had a um, former middle school teacher come on to talk a little bit about talking to your children about their bodies, whether it is proper terminology, STI, sexual health, pleasure, intimacy, all of that. And what I run into is that so many parents want their children to know this information but they don't want to start the conversations out of fear of maybe not knowing the information, out of maybe it feeling uncomfortable because it is gonna be uncomfortable. Like you said, we don't necessarily want that, but at the end of the day, if you are able to go to your parents and get that information and get honest, truthful answers, it really helps build your relationship with your children slash parent, depending on which role or side of the table that you're on. But it also helps um, make sure that they get the right information that you want them to know. So a lot of times there is personal belief and family values behind the sexual education. And the only way for your children to know what your family values are and to understand the why behind that is for it to come from you. Your children will find this information one way or another, and it could mean that they're getting their information from porn. And we all know that porn is a poor source of education. It it can be a great way to share with your partners what you like, but as a teen who doesn't necessarily know what sex looks like, it's not a good resource. And so making sure that you have that nice environment, that environment for parents and children to have that conversation is, is important because the schools just, they can't get that information in. No, absolutely. And it's also interesting to think about it. Like now as an adult, that's very sex positive. I look at like the generational trauma and I, I don't even hold my parents accountable anymore because I'm just like, you know what y'all were doing as best as you can. Granted, did I get any sex ed? No, but I saw kind of the information that their parents passed down to them. And honestly, I think it's, it was probably better that they just didn't say anything. uh, Because, you know, there's just some, you know, in certain generations, there's some whack ass shit going on. So I, I was, I was appreciative that they didn't really try. as an adult with like 2020 vision, but I a hundred percent agree. It's super challenging for teachers to one, get the education out there to the kids on a consistent basis. Cause it's not required literally anywhere, but also when you're dealing with, you know, 20 to 30 kids, all of those family values and beliefs and even religious understandings come into play. And then there's so many limitations. So it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's a really complex way, or I would say like a complex system. And we basically have to like intervene in the school system, but we also need to get the families involved. And I think that that's such an important note. And I think that's where people like yourself and myself and the other sex positive sex educators out there come into play is that we are trying to educate not only the adolescents who are coming up, but also the parents so that they have the proper tools to have these conversations and feel more comfortable and confident when having the conversations. The other thing, you know, with schools is that 
I don't know if you know this or not, but my, my mom's a teacher. So I actually have some background insight about how schools work and they are given a list of things that they cannot discuss. And so if a kid asks a particular question, they are not allowed to answer some questions. And this comes back to the shame and stigma of bodies, sexuality, intimacy, all of that, in that parents who make up school boards, we're just going to use this kind of as an example of where these rules come from, don't allow for this information to be discussed in schools, yet want their kids to have better sex education, yet they don't want to provide it. So there's a huge gap. And it's just like a, a hamster on a wheel. Like, how do you solve that? And better education for parents, I guess, is where it starts so that they support getting it into the schools so that we can have more consistent education. No, absolutely. I, I, I actually, I've never heard of that before, I guess, because we're in Canada, so it's a little bit different. Uh, but granted, I like I my education is to become a teacher and i recently did a placement in a grade one class a kid asked me um why there was blood in the toilet and i said verbatim i remember this i said oh sometimes women bleed out of their vaginas it's called menstruation and i got reprimanded and they were like you can't use that it's not age appropriate and I'm like, so grade ones can't know about vulvas and menstruation because they're going to start bleeding in a couple years. So what are we going to have like a horror, like a horror movie of just like all these 12 year olds screaming bloody murder because they're bleeding out of their vaginas and nobody told them anything. So and they're not told that it's a vagina. They don't know where it comes from. I mean, we say down there, you're, you're going to get blood down there. And this is part of growing up. What, what the hell does that mean? It's like out of your leg. They're like, I got my period. Like, <laughs> I can't believe you got reprimanded for that. I mean, I, I also understand because I know that that's how schools operate, but these children have the right to know about their bodies and have accurate, correct information. And because people don't feel comfortable having that conversation doesn't mean that they should not have access to that. No, 100%. We're definitely on the same page, but kind of going, circling back because we are still trying to like bridge this gap. And I know that most of our listeners didn't get access to any comprehensive sex ed. Are there any resources or tools that you would suggest for folks? Um, I know some of them are American, but I think some of them we might be able to find in Canada. I saw on your page that there's a lot of at-home SDI testing kits, which I'm obsessed with, but I don't even think we have here, to be completely honest. Are you serious? I'm going to do a quick Google now, but you tell us what resources are oh, out Google there because there's none here. Yes. So some of the resources that I love to share is first how to have that conversation with your partner, whether you have an STI or not communicating with your partner and having conversations about testing intimacy is really important. One of my favorite tools is the stars method from Dr. Dacker. And it's the S stands for sexually transmitted infections. So what is your STI status? When were you last tested? How many partners have you had since then? T stands for turn on. So what do you like in the bedroom? 
Is there something that you really want to do? A stands for avoid. So is there anything that you really want to avoid that is like, absolutely not. If this happens, I'm, I'm no longer interested in continuing our um, experience. R stands for relationship intentions. So where do you see this relationship going? Is this a casual hookup? Are we in a committed monogamous relationship? Are we in some sort of non-monogamous relationship? What does that look like? And then finally, what are your safe sex practices? So are you gonna be using condoms? Are you not? What does that look like for you? And having this conversation really can help you have better sex, period. The other really helpful tool that I love is like where to get tested at. So there are a ton of free resources for a lot of communities. You can reach out to public health or um, kind of do a Google search. Do you have Planned Parenthood in Canada? No, we don't have much. I just did a Google test uh, or a Google test, a Google search, and there aren't any at home tests. Granted, what I will say is walk in clinics in Canada definitely have the resources that you need and are virtually free, especially if you're under 25, uh, which is beautiful. But I, uh, we do have one Planned Parenthood in Toronto. but it's not, we don't have the same resources as y'all do for sexual and reproductive health. It's more just like a general practitioner issue, which is kind of on, honestly worse because you go to some weird old guy who's like swabbing your vulva and you're just like, fuck, this is awful. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I love Planned Parenthood. I love the mail-in kits. Those are so easy because you can do them in the privacy of your own home. Nobody even knows you're doing it. And you don't even have to go to a provider unless your results come back abnormal, then you do have a phone call with a provider. But it is a, I I personally, that's my favorite. And what was I gonna tell you about testing? One of the other important things about STI testing is that when you typically go to a provider and ask to be tested, they are not screening for everything. The standard testing includes gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV, and syphilis. There are a handful of other STIs out there that are not included in those four. So HSV is not commonly tested for. Trichomonas also not commonly tested for. Hepatitis C not commonly tested for. Um, and there's there's a handful of other, uh, ooh, let me take that back. There are a handful of other ones, marcoplasm, ureaplasm, those are also not commonly tested for. And a lot of people are not, a lot of providers are not familiar with marcoplasm and ureaplasm. And those are some of the newer STIs quote on the block. And um, so when you go to get tested, I encourage bringing a list of what you want to be tested for. Do you want just the basic test, which would include either a urine or swab and the blood work or do you want the extended testing? Do you want to get the HSV status? Do you want to get trichomonas tested for? Do you want those other things? And asking your provider for them. Unfortunately, like you said, you know, if you're going to somebody who is an old guy who's swabbing you, he may not be up to date on a lot of these things and may not be open to testing some of them because 
they don't know how. And that was actually something that I ran into as a provider with uh, marcoplasm is that when I went to work at a new clinic, they had never tested for this before in their life and had no clue how to do it. And I'm like, you need to find that and you need to have that lab. So like, you need to have that lab order ready because that is something that I am going to regularly order for my patients. And yeah, so those are some things to know when requesting testing as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if I can just add uh, one thing that's, I think, super interesting and not discussed enough is that if you contract an STI, there's kind of like a window period of when it'll actually show up on testing, um, which I think is super interesting because I feel like everyone's immediate reaction is just like, okay, had sex, now got to get tested this weekend. And if you did contract something, it might not show up on the test that you did three days after you had sex. Um, I think the exposure, what is the correct terminology for that? Like for the window period? Oh gosh, I want to say it's like an infection window. I'm not sure if I have the total... um incubation incubation i think period or inoculation period yeah but i think it's usually like two to three but it could extend to like six if i'm correct so it depends on what it is Mm -hmm. so some things can take a couple of weeks to show up other things hiv a lot of times is about six months before it'll show up on a blood test and that actually brings up another really good point is that the current partner that you're with, that doesn't mean that you got your STI from them because these things could have happened years prior and are just now showing up. For example, HPV, that a lot of times is only screened on a pap smear over the age of 30. So if you contracted that under the age of 30 at any point, it's not routinely tested for. And so, you don't know who that came from. That's a little bit worrying, but also important to note. Um, But yeah, I think that like reiterates the importance of getting tested regularly. Yeah. And those are the recommendations in the States. So it is potentially different in Canada too. It's very similar. I know we definitely have discrepancies within our testing system. So like for me personally, Every couple years, I'll go and get the like big routine STI, but on the regular, I'll just kind of ask for the like general, like just kind of like the simple test because I usually go every six months. So it's like more common than um, what they recommend here, but it's, it's, it's pretty parallel to what the U.S. recommends. But... I I think that we covered so much today and I'm like so happy to to have had you on the on the podcast. Um where can people find you to ask you more about your experience, about your podcast? Where can people search you up and ask you more questions? Yeah, the best place to find me is going to be on Instagram at Jordan Danell. Um, I, it's J-O-R-D-A-N-D-N-E-L-L-E. You can also check out the podcast, Vaginas, Vulvas, and Vibrators. There are lots of episodes there with a million and one resources. And 
I forgot to tell you, you can also get your uh, upgrade. What did I, what do I call it? Let me think for a second. Why am I blanking on the name of it? Your free ultimate guide to foreplay by going to foreplay.jordandanelle.com. Amazing. And what is that exactly? So that is my top foreplay tips. And I think it's a list of, or like a, a video of about 10 different tips that I recommend to help you have better foreplay. And I'll tell you the, the link, my website is down at the very second. I got to get that fixed, but the link will be fixed. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Jordan, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Make sure to like the Sex and Self podcast on all your streaming platforms and subscribe for more episodes like this every single Monday. Thanks for listening.